Hi there, I'm Jeff Stein, and this is Spy Talk. I've been selling my soul, working all day, overtime hours for bullshit pay, so I can sit out here and waste my life away. Well, unless you've had your phone and TV off for the past five months, you probably recognize Richmond North of Richmond, the mournful and angry ballad by Oliver Anthony that's been adopted as an anthem of sorts by Donald Trump's Make America Great Again movement. The other songster entrancing MAGA world these days, of course, is that avatar of evil, Taylor Swift, who according to a conspiracy theory drummed up by extreme pro-Trump commentators, is the spearhead of a Pentagon cywar campaign to convert Americans into Democrats. If only, amused liberals say. But that's a good enough peg to devote this week's Spy Talk podcast to a discussion about psychological warfare and so-called influence operations with Paul Cobol, a leading practitioner of the little understood arts. In that world, Rich men north of Richmond would be called a strong narrative, a message that emotionally connects with the millions of Americans who think something's terribly wrong with this country, a sentiment shared by many across the political spectrum, but who blame it amorphously on rich people, Democrats, liberals, rhinos, those few Americans left who are willing to stand up to Trump's appeal principally, but not entirely, to resentful middle-aged white men, evangelicals, especially anti-abortion evangelicals, gun owners, and nationalists who want to remake America as a Christian nation, and even those who think the violent January 6th mob assault on the U.S. Capitol was justified and may be called for again if Joe Biden wins re-election. Paul Cobol spent decades in the U.S. Special Operations Counterterrorism Community, primarily focused on blunting the emotional, social, and political appeal of adversaries like Al-Qaeda, ISIS, and Hamas to youth across the Middle East and beyond. Obviously, the results in Iraq and Afghanistan, not to mention the West Bank and Gaza, show that such efforts, along with many other strategic mistakes by U.S. commanders, failed. But today, Cobalt thinks the U.S. faces a comparable threat from right-wing extremists who have found a home in the Trump movement. As vice president of Narrative Strategies, a think tank which specializes in what he calls the non-kinetic aspects of conflict, Cobol says the U.S. government has utterly failed to deliver an effective counter-message to unhappy Americans, an off-ramp for them to reject extremism and stay within the boundaries of peaceful protest. As our conversation reveals, though, any such effort by the government would face strong headwinds, even peril. Paul Cobol, welcome to Spy Talk. We meet at kind of an interesting time of psychological warfare with uh, the MAGA world accusing Taylor Swift of being some part of a secret Pentagon plan to do something or other. It's kind of hard to follow. Um, but this is right in your wheelhouse. You talk about narrative strategies. That's one of your, your key subjects that you talk about as kind of a, uh, a longtime information warrior, let me put it that way, uh, working in the psychological warfare uh, sphere of government operations. So let's talk about this narrative strategy. You say... Uh, in your newsletter, uh, 
and other places in conversations with me, you talk about the narrative strategy of the opposition, which you define as the MAGA world, uh, which has adopted a, a narrative strategy of uh, that uh, 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 that the U.S. was founded as a Christian nation, as a white Christian nation, um, and uh, it, 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 it emphasizes so-called family values and so on. And you say that we have to, we, and you specifically say the government is failing to develop an effective countermeasure to that narrative. So, so let's talk about that a little bit. What do you mean by an effective narrative strategy? What would that look like? Well, I, if you don't mind, can you, I, let me just give a, a 30 second or a, a 60 second definition, a, a, a lay definition of what a narrative really is. So for most people, a narrative is just a story. But the, the truth of the matter is, it's not just a story. It's the story that that confers and triggers the meaning that each person has based on their own specific identity. So, for example, if you know, if you have a close relative or a close friend that you've known for decades, you know exactly what to say or do to trigger them to get the, the specific response, make them angry, make them laugh, make them trip, make them embarrass themselves. You know exactly the right way to to act and say in order to make that happen. And it, and it works because you know their identity. You well, know exactly uh, the mag MAGA adherents, uh, they uh, love to what, what they call trigger the liberals to say outrageous things and get liberals to uh, respond with anger. And, and, they, and then they say that, well, you guys have Trump derangement syndrome. So it seems to me that the, that the conservatives, the right-wingers, the Trump fans have mastered this, this uh, technique. It's even more than the Trump fans. So I will give you something I've been doing a lot of research on for literally for years. And there's only two ways to understand the identity of a person or of an audience. And that is one, you can do the hard work of the intellectual analysis if you understand narrative. Or two, you can build an identity that you can trigger. So my example in my research is based around Fox News. So for 30 plus years, Fox News has taken very small baby steps to condition their audience to respond to a new meaning for things. And so family values is a good example. Uh, patriotism, I tend to call MAGA fake patriotism because what they've done over 30 years in incremental steps until now it's foolproof they have convinced that essentially, in order to be patriotic, it's all about guns, God, and Trump. Now, I've written a lot of research on this, and there's a ton of work out there from the National Council of Churches that absolutely dethrones any version of white Christian nationalism, which is the, it's the religious theocratic identity of the MAGA audience. The patriotism has been defined by, by Fox. So what has happened over the 30 years all what would all people that were considered principal conservatives in the, let's say in the Reagan era, now they are MAGA, but not because they don't believe themselves to be patriotic, because they absolutely believe themselves to be patriotic. It's just that Fox has replaced the definition of patriotism in their audience. So now anytime they show a color, 
their their color arrangement on their all their publications and and TV and radio, it's all the same. The words they use, the phrases they use, stop the steal, drain the swamp, lock her up, these three-letter chants, these, the audiences have all been conditioned to see this as supporting patriotism. Mm-hmm. So that's, how, that's what narrative is about. Narrative is about how everything that you experience in your entire life allows you to up subconsciously see things a certain way, frame things a certain way. Mm-hmm. So now that they've established the identity, it, no matter what stupid conspiracy theory and completely ignorant conspiracy theory, I'm sorry I'm using harsh words, but I'm a little frustrated with how we haven't addressed this issue, not just at home, but also overseas in our, all the conflicts we've experienced in the last few decades. So they now can say, virtually anything to their audience and it's not just fox because everybody else has piled on on the right in right media now even the heritage foundation which used to be for Mm -hmm. you know generically a responsible think tank 30 years ago now they parrot exactly these conspiracy theories so does that help i don't know if that's a base well no i think uh anyone who follows this issue you know fairly closely understands that uh, certainly people who are critical of this direction uh, are aware of, of what uh, the incredible, incredibly important role that Fox News has played in establishing this narrative. But you go on to say in your writing that the government has failed to counteract this narrative. It hasn't done its job. The, you specifically call out the FBI and the Department of Homeland Security. So so what do you recommend? So, uh, this is, and I don't mean to insult anybody in your audience because your audience is as smart as they can. Please don't. <laughs> no, no. But influence is an extremely deep and complex issue. So, I'm just I'm gonna, I'm not dumbing it down for them. I'm dumbing it down to make it easy for me to explain things. So I'll use an example. After 9/11, and we've talked about this before. After 9/11, the Department of Homeland Security, after it came to be after 9/11, they talked to the American people every day, all day, round the clock, about the type of terrorism that's centered on Islamic extremism. They engaged the audience. They explained to the audience. They told people what the threat level was and why. It was complete. They established a complete, honest narrative about threats. Well, well primarily there. And it wasn't, it wasn't hard. It wasn't hard after the 9-11 attacks with the World Trade Center and the Pentagon and smoldering ruins. Exactly. So that attack on the United States... The 9/11 was first since war, since Pearl Harbor of any significance. That triggered the old patriotic identity of the Republican Party. Since that time, was well into the first few years the Fox manipulation of the audience, the psychological manipulating the audience. In that time, the Republican Party has been manipulated to believe in an entirely different form of patriotism so when russia attacked our elections and nobody at any level in your community my community any even responsible politicians will say yeah that was a russian attack the the senate select committee on intelligence put out a five volume report 
detail in excruciating detail, even redacted about the cooperation with the Trump campaign and Russian intelligence. Mm -hmm. But because the strength of narrative is the fact that nobody will believe anything that is not delivered by their narrator. First of all, their narrators. So Fox or Tucker Carlson or any of the, any of the clowns like Joe Rogan and those folks, whatever they say, as long as it's on, on narrative, their audience will believe it and discount everything else. Well, this is a, a well-known principle, and it doesn't need a social scientist to tell us that we tend to believe things that are delivered by people that we trust. So to your point, and that's exactly right, well, it's not just trust, but the reason you trust them is because you have bonded your Share identity values. with theirs. Mm -hmm. Right, shared values. We don't have that anymore. The the Republican Party has established shared values with essentially what is the Russian theocratic far right ideology that they use to control their 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 uh, allies, their population to some extent, and that is synonymous all all the way around the world. It's not just Russia and the U.S. And it's, it's all the far right authoritarian nations that we've experienced this past wave of authoritarianism. And, and as we fascism. know. As we know from the polls, uh, this is mm -hmm. deeply embedded in the conservative sphere, um, in the uh, Republican Party. Absolutely. 70% of the current Repu voting Republicans still believe the last election was stolen or manipulated. Mm -hmm. 70%. So this is, this is why I talk about this subject so often, because everybody that says all oh, the polls say these Republicans are not going to vote for Trump again, they're nuts. Because... The way narrative works is no matter what their narrators say, those Republicans are going to do that. Exactly what they say. That's the depth of the threat we're dealing with. And right now, they will elect another MAGA Republican, even if it's not uh, Donald Trump. Okay, I want to sort of swerve away from politics uh, for a moment. I, right. I want to stay with the subject of, of psychological warfare. Um, so... Um, from 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 your expertise uh, and what you've said in your writings is the government needs to do more to counter this narrative. So what, from a psychological warfare point of view, should the government or can the government do anything? I mean, we have, we don't want Big Brother here. Uh, no, absolutely not. So anyway, what do you suggest we do? And then I want to go into some of the history of psychological warfare. So... What's really important was your question about what should the FBI be doing? What should our narrative strategy be? And that is simple. We need to engage the American people. Right now, the Department of Homeland Security and the FBI, are the, they have the primary responsibilities for, detect, for protecting our homeland. It's, it, it's really their turf, their court. Yep. Neither one of them spend any... If, at all, or a very extremely limited amount of time talking to the American people. An occasional press release about January 6th, that's not talking to the American people. If we remember what we talked about when we talked about after post 9-11, the home, Department of Homeland Security and the FBI talk and all government officials talk to the U.S. population ad nauseum. It constantly came at us. They never lied. So you could tell the complete truth a narrative does not equal truth, but you can establish a, an effective narrative by telling the truth. And what the Department of Homeland Security is going to sacrifice our next election if they do not start talking to the American people. And 
it's well, an absurd thing. They're, they're they're all hell bent on cyber and AI. That's well, let's, not the let's, let's 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 address that point first of all. So, what do you mean, talk to the American people? And what so, should should the government be talking to the American people? What what should they be saying? Well, they need to tell the truth about what. Well, they the do. United they, States they, government they, every, itself. They said, the United uh, States uh, government. Uh, Oh, sorry, Let me take a contrary point for a moment. The government, okay, that's the White House, anyway, and, and the president himself, day after day after day, they talk about the insurrectionists and interference with the elections. They are hammering this point day after day after day because they've decided the best way, they think the best way to get reelected is to make the election about Trump and the Trump world's uh, extremism, as they define it. Right. So... Uh, I don't know how you you're saying that's the wrong message. Uh, wh what are you well, saying? Yes and no. So if we again using 9/11 as the perfect example in this case, it wasn't just the Oval Office that stood up there and talked. We can't get it out out of Congress right now. Just Congress will never agree on anything to talk about this issue. And I mean, I don't mean to make this. It's not a political issue for me. This is just national security right now. It's the Republican Party in Congress that actually stands in a way of doing anything. Okay, what do you security. what do you do about that? So, again, it's really important to harken back to the post 9-11 era. It wasn't just the Oval Office. It wasn't just congressmen. It wasn't just governors. It wasn't just corporate leadership that that narrated the threats about Islamic extremism in the homeland. That information, it went down to your local sheriff's office. It went down to your local mayors, your county commissioners, your county, and here, for example, in Texas, a county judge, it's like the county commissioner. Everybody from top to the very bottom was well informed about the threat. And it was their local leadership speaking out. Nothing, we don't, the beauty of a democracy is one that we all have a voice. But we all have to exercise that voice when we when we pursue a, a level of leadership, no matter if it's dog catcher or all the way to the Oval Office, we have a responsibility to educate, inform for the purpose of influencing. So, I mean, honestly, honestly, inform the American people in your jurisdiction. So what would that be does not exist in any way, shape or form. What would be the effective message from, from, you know, speaking from your your expertise, if the government mm -hmm. had free reign to let's let's call it what it is, propagandize the American people, uh, right. what would be the message to counteract this white Christian uh, nationalist message? What how do, how do you reach? People. I think that's what many listeners would say. I have a, a close friend who's become a Trump, you know, a MAGA head. Right. Uh, and and uh, we all do. Well, -edged. so uh, so how do you how do you what should the government do to, to try to counteract that narrative? And this is where some of the complexities may or may not become a little bit burdensome, but I have to get this out there. And that is that. Like any great story, any great narrative book or epic movie or series, it's not just one theme. There are multiple themes interwoven into the story. The white Christian nationalism is just one of the primary themes because and the other theme is oligarchism. 
which in other words, a handful of wealthy elite or powerful elite really make all the decisions and the democracy is just kind of a, a facade that you put over it. So what's happening is primary products, primary corporate entities consistently will advertise on all these heinous conspiracy theory sites. Those people that advertise, for example, or in any way reinforce or support financially and, and overtly the MAGA right at this moment, they are supporting. They are working so, against us. So uh, the government, I follow your logic here. It seems to me you're saying that the government should try to persuade uh, these corporate entities not to be advertising on white Christian nationalist sites. Absolutely. But the only effective, the only effective out approaches to this right now are all grassroots effort. There's a couple of young women uh, that I see often on LinkedIn or in other social media. Check my ads. That's what it's called. And what they do is they go after the people, the companies and the corporations that spend money on Breitbart or Newsmax and the rest, the Fox. Fox News, Gateway Pundit, all the conspiracy theory sites, Alex Jones. And those people relate, and their audiences relate to the products, they relate to the message, because there's always a subtle implication in the ad that leans people to follow the, that approach more, more carefully. So I have to also say this really quickly, because the people have assumed that influence is PSYOPs or PSYWAR. Influence is about the full spectrum of the U.S. society, especially every sector of U.S. government that engages with the U.S. population is to consistently and effectively inform the U.S. public about what they're doing, what their agendas are, why they're doing it. Because every, every entity within the U.S. government, Department of Commerce, Department of Transportation, they are all executing a mission based on true American values. They have to engage the public. What we're, we're doing right now is influence is going to take a lot more than, first of all, we're not even legally allowed to influence American public. Although right. Influence, this, is, this is what yeah. I'm trying to get at. I mean, you specifically fault the FBI and the Department of Homeland Security for not effectively countering this message. And we've, see, we've seen the FBI sort of go outside its lane uh, in the anti-counterterrorism uh, fight where they would pay visits to Arab Americans who were suspected of having sympathies for al-Qaeda or ISIS. It was very chilling, you know. There was no evidence yes. that they were involved, these subjects were involved in, in terrorism. But once they paid a visit, their name was in the system and they might be uh, prohibited from boarding a plane and so on. Um, we've seen a lot of reporting on that. Um, but you so, all, but, but you're not triggered. saying, you're not <laughs> saying the FBI should visit um, Americans espousing these extremist views and tell them to chill it, right? No, I'm talking. I'm all I'm asking the FBI and the Homeland Security folks to do. And it's really more Homeland Security than the FBI because they have that that significant law enforcement role, which is critical to American democracy. But they need to start talking to the people the way that they talk to the the average American citizen from A to Z, top to bottom, 
about the threat of mis and disinformation. And how do they do that, Paul? Do they, what, uh, have press conferences? Are they, uh, specifically, uh, what are you asking the government to do about this? Exactly the same thing they did after 9-11. Not only did they stand up in front of cameras every single day and discuss threats, but news reporters from mainstream responsible reporting, they also echoed that. Then they distributed products, disseminated products, all the way down to the very local, most minor official, so that that official had the actual hardcore up-to-date truth in their hands as much as possible. They made every effort to keep Americans honestly informed about threats. Hmm. What and they... we completely have stopped that. Well, it's really not of... more difficult than talking to your neighbors about, oh, you know, there's a tornado coming. Maybe we want to get underground. In in red states, you have a lot of local officials who are totally signed on to the uh, white Christian nationalist uh, Trump message. So uh, you can't really target them. They're they're beyond our, our reach. Um, I, I Let me bring up something that might seem irrelevant, but I watched a documentary last night about the anti-war GI movement during the Vietnam War. Right. And one of the really effective ways that these handful of GIs who were opposed to the war in Vietnam uh, spread their message eventually was to actually leaflet uh, military bases uh, saying you are not alone if you are opposed to the war. There are there are many of us join the movement to stop the Vietnam War, and that became very effective. And uh, I could make an argument that we got out of Vietnam because the Army, Navy, Marines were falling apart. The unit cohesion was falling apart. They were even murdering their officers who were being a little bit too aggressive in combat right. operations. They didn't want to die for a mistake, as the, as the right. uh, slogan put it. So is there some version of that for domestic consumption? So how do you, uh, what, what's the modern form of leafleting uh, communities to say you are not alone in opposing this uh, extremist message? It wasn't the leaflet that made the difference. The leaflet really had become just one dissemination method of what everybody that wanted to end the war was talking about. The narrative, the anti-war narrative existed across every state, some lesser, some, and like in red states, lesser there, and, and especially in what are typically today considered blue states. But first of all, because you have this leads right to the question you asked prior to this this part of the discussion the leaflet just became one method coming from the right narrator xgis that handing out that leaflet was really powerful because they were effective narrators of the message that was already pre-existing that the u.s not in the beginning the that was, message that message was not proliferating in the beginning the military worked hard to to uh, yes. suppress that message court-martialed anti-war gis and so on but when they started uh you know, opening uh, anti-war coffee houses and uh, and especially this leafleting. Um, uh, they even leafleted. They flew over with a Piper Cub over an aircraft carrier and, and dropped <laughs> and dropped anti-war leaflets, and that attracted the news media because this was such yes. an audacious uh, act. Um, but this and, is the and, beauty of American democracy. It's the people that stood up and said, "We're not going." 
especially after, as we discussed before, the Pentagon Papers, American people stood up and said, I can't make a decision about this war unless you all tell me the truth, because you haven't been telling me the truth. So the, Amer the beauty of democracy is when citizens that are bound to the historical narrative of the nation, the honorable narrative of the nation, they will stand up and say, I'm tired of this crap. Okay. I want so, the truth. Tell, yeah. What's, well, we don't have that today. What's the tool you use to? Let's, what, what's what's the, the the today's metaphor for that for reaching, say, blue individuals in red states and so on to say, you know, you're not alone. Your your local officials may be into this extremist movement, uh, but uh, we we know you're out there. How do you how do you get that message out? So this, this turns into a political strategy, but I'm also going to tell you the truth from a narrative perspective and an influence perspective. Please. We're, we're, there will be zero impact by doing any of this in red states. Hard red states like Texas, where I live, where it's, we're run by complete insanity. Uh, we're, we define the MAGA narrative in Texas, mm -hmm. operationally and in our lives. Those people will not be changed by any narrative in the next few months but not every single it's, texan signs on to that especially in no, places but they will, like austin but radically but radically gerrymandered states and deep red states it doesn't matter what the other side will say because it won't it won't change anything the critical parts to winning this election for democracy regardless of who it is as long as it's not the the right at the moment is to get the purple states the purple states tend to be the states where more people want to learn, they want to listen, they want to be informed, and then that will tip the balance. Well, we have to take a break now, Paul. We'll be back in a minute. Okay, we're back. Uh, Paul, here's a, here seems to be a fatal flaw to me in your argument, so I'm going to play devil's advocate here for a minute. I love that. Uh, the People don't trust the government. Across the board, uh, liberals, conservatives, MAGA world, progressives, there's been a across the board decline in trust of the government. So how do you use the government? <laughs> how do you use the government, this discredited government, to send a message? The government, so that's why disseminating information, disseminating the narrative all the way down to the local level, the to the neighborhood level is what matters. Well, because yeah, but I, you're you're dodging my question. No, who no, does, no, I'm who, do, who does the disseminating? The actual local officials. Now, what's really important to understand about that is even if, you, let's say, like my councilman in northern San Antonio is, he's got all the MAGA stuff up on his on his website, but at the local level, that guy cannot ignore the voters because votes tend to be relatively close because people know people and it impacts their local school board, which I have a big challenge with in my local school district right now. Their politics impact uh, budgets for street fixing streets. They are a lot more accountable to their local citizens than anybody else. We don't have to tell them what the me message is. We just have to give them the information that they need to effectively communicate. When you say we have to get them the message, who are you talking about? Who's the we here? I would pin this directly on Homeland Security, the exact same way that they did after 9-11. They were sending out stoplight charts and background information, 
all kinds of information about specific terrorists, specific terrorist groups. Are they infiltrated in the U.S.? Are, are they a threat at the southern border? Are they a threat at the local uh, water plant? Constantly, we were barraged, and I am grateful for that. I thought that was a really good job. Okay, so you think that the Department of DHS should undertake this propagandizing mission? There's no other way to put it. Um, and no, just, no, no, no. Just it's, put it's the message it's, out there. Put the message out there, and local officials can accept it or not accept it, or people can accept it or not accept it. But they should just be putting out the message day after day that there's a domestic extremist threat, not just violence, but just uh, uh, importuning people to be ready to commit violence uh, uh, in support of their cause. It's not propagandizing. It's, infor it's informing to influence. So the influence is not to influence for a specific side. It's to influence in support of reality. Because the, what we're experiencing now is we have one major party that deals in policy and facts for the most part, and we have another party that deals in complete alternate reality. It's all we're, if, if you give somebody the right information and all of it at the same time, they can't say they didn't know. Um, the Department of Homeland the White House actually uh, made a big drum roll uh, a couple of years ago when they uh, said that for the first time, the Department of Homeland Security has designated domestic violent extremism as a national priority area within right. the department's Homeland Security grant program. I'm reading now from their press release, which right. means that over $77 million will be allocated to state, local, tribal, and territorial partners to prevent, protect against, and respond to domestic violent extremism. Um, so have you tracked that, seen what's going on with that? Absolutely, and there is no evidence that there's anything of significance of deriving from that agenda. Now, I'll give uh, Director Ray uh, over the FBI at least he will stand up and, and talk about domestic extremist threats. The political aspect is extremely difficult. The deep red folks, the folks that are already unrecoverable in this generation from their MAGA beliefs, they're not going to believe it anyway. But some people do want to know the truth. CSIS did this pretty amazing report about two and a half years ago about domestic extremism. And by the facts, the far right is by far the most lethal and aggressive uh, domestic violence threat. But there's also violence on the left. So what they did is they broke the violence down. Was it defensive? Was it offensive? Did it involve weapons? Did it not involve weapons? Did they have a? Did they? They did. A, they profiled the folks who were arrested. Is this this person had never been married? This person had been in jail seven times. This person has a violent tendency. This person has had mental health issues. So there was a lot of data to work with. Mm -hmm. That's what law. That's what ethical law enforcement needs. I'm not. I mean, you got the whole constitutional sheriff movement out there. They're never going to help you because that's who they are. Right. And as I was saying earlier, that uh, it's a real uphill battle for the government, which is of course we dug ourselves into this hole. You know who's worse than Homeland Security? The national security community. We would have never had the national security threat from Russian influence operations against the United States that we've seen at the at the level we've seen in the past eight years 
if the national security community had done their job instead of talking about the gibberish that they include for doctrine when it comes to, they can't even say the word influence. They make up all kinds of terms for it. The problem is influence. Our adversaries, and now in cooperation with a, with a major political party, are cooperating not only in messaging, but on the narratives that make the messaging work. Uh, I think a lot of people have also said that at this point, there's such chaos and polarization in American politics that Russians don't really need to do anything, or the Chinese, for, or the North Koreans, or the Iranians, for that matter. Um, that the, uh, I mean, you've got Tucker Carlson in Moscow, you know, um, sitting on Putin's lap. Uh, right. So, anyway, uh, tell me about some successful psyops uh, or influence operations in the past. Wow. <laughs> well, there, we have the big demonstrable ones that tend to be more like what they call MILDEC or military deception. So, for example, during the first Gulf War, we went to great lengths to make sure that Saddam Hussein thought the Marines were going to land on the beaches. And instead, the Army made an in run far, far to the west and entered Iraq from the far west and southwest. That's, mm -hmm. a, that's a great operation. But you know, who it's, it's, re, it's, it's like World War II when we created a fake army uh, exactly. under Patton in England exactly. and put out the message that we were going to invade at Calais rather than Normandy, where we did. And when I when I chastise the national security community for being so, I mean, we're at least two generations. We talk about weapon systems. We talk about generations. When I talk about the national security community in general, when it comes to influence. We're at least two generations behind our worst adversaries, at least. And you know what? If they're learning, they don't understand narrative warfare so well because nobody will give up. We will, at our think tank, we don't give up the intellectual property on how to do it. But what they do is they campaign. So they're learning while they're flying the airplane. We're not campaigning. We have a little bit here, a little bit there. And it's so overstaffed and so poorly campaigned that we're not succeeding at all. We lost in well, Iraq. We lost Iraq. We lost Afghanistan because, yeah, we're really good at killing people and breaking things. But what do you do after? And in both cases, we fail miserably. Right. In Vietnam, look at the, look at that's a great example. And you were there. Yeah. We seem to be hamstrung by our own constitutional prohibitions on government interference in our lives. So uh, I think it's just going to we're just going to have some sort of uh, have spontaneous uh, uh, popular uh, uprising against extremism. And we're not at that point yet. We're going to see how that plays out in the future. But we have to leave it there, Paul Cobol. Thanks so much for uh, joining me today and the podcast to talk about this very, very difficult issue yes yes it, yeah we need to keep re-engaging on this but thank you so much jeff for your time i really appreciate the honor thank you these rich men know the rich men lord knows they all just want to have total control and that's it for this week's spy talk be sure to check out our complete podcast archives on apple or wherever you get your podcast and if you haven't already do check out the spytalk.co news site on substack where we offer a steady diet of scoops and original analyses on the intersection of intelligence, foreign policy, and military operations. Just Google Spy Talk or, hey, use AI, and you'll quickly find your way there. This edition of the Spy Talk podcast was smoothly produced, as always, by Kanai and edited by 
Molly Hawkey for MSW Media. So have a great week. I'm Jeff Stein for Spy Talk. See you around. For more original reporting and insights like this, subscribe to spytalk.co on Substack and follow us on Twitter at talk underscore spy. If you enjoyed our podcast, subscribe and leave a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. M-S-W-Media.